We were coming off a busy ministry weekend a couple of weeks ago, and the cupboard was bare at home. And Amanda told me, you're going to have to do what you hate doing. You're going to have to drive through somewhere for lunch. So I went to uh, an area uh, establishment, ordered a couple of things cheap, pulled up to the window. And the woman at the window said, you have awesome hair. And I said, well, I spend about five seconds a day on this hair. Maybe that's the problem. And she continued to banter with me, and food exchanged hands, money exchanged hands. I pulled away from the drive-up window. I looked down. Hey, she shorted me a buck. Honestly, first thought that went through my mind, would Pastor Steve go back for his dollar? No joke. I think he would. But I'm not Pastor Steve, and I thought, you know what, I, I, I bet if I think carefully about this, I can get a sermon illustration for one dollar. So I thought about it, and I think one of two things happened there. It, either my hair is a whole lot more awesome than I think it is, and she was really distracted, or she distracted me and stole a dollar. I think that might be the case. We are a distracted and distractible people, are we not? And often this distraction will cost us more than a dollar. Uh, It can cost us our reputations. It can even cost us our lives. During these two weeks, we're helping each other think about what our response to distraction says about where we put our trust. Are we truly trusting God, or do our responses to distraction indicate a self-dependence that needs to be confessed and made right with God? And what does God do to help us with that? Last week, we did a quick survey of the Old Testament and looked at different figures who were distracted. We started with Adam and Eve. They had everything, didn't they? They had each other. They had this garden without sin. They had God himself, and yet they allowed an intruder to come in and get their attention, and what gets your attention gets you, and they fell. We looked at some other figures. We ended up spending the majority of our time on Solomon who had all sorts of distractions in the persons of his wives who led him to worship their gods. And as we saw in the passage, it wasn't his wives that were the problem. The very fact that he allowed those distractions into his life showed that he really wasn't trusting God in the first place. This week we're in the New Testament, and if this were an adult ed class where you were allowed to talk, (laughs) you know, we would just shout out, Answers of who in the New Testament do you know who was distracted? And somebody pretty quickly would say, Martha, right? She didn't respond rightly to Jesus. Mary did. Uh, But Martha's too obvious, so we can't do her. Uh, Somebody would say, Peter, and that's right. You know, you could do a whole sermon illustration or a whole series on Peter and all the different ways that he was distracted and ultimately uh, restored by the Lord. 
But because we only have today to work with, I, I don't want to give you a negative example of somebody who responded wrongly to distraction. I want to give you the great positive example of the one who responded appropriately to distraction. We're going to talk about the Lord Jesus. And I would invite you to go to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, very well-known passage, normally called the, the, the temptation of Christ. Today we're going to call it the attempted distraction of Christ. And as you're going there, I'll remind you where it is in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has just been baptized He needed to be baptized not because he was a sinner, but because he was identifying with us who are sinners. And, of course, when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of God came down on him, and he heard his Father's voice, which said, who said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Right after our passage in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into ministry, and he calls upon the nation, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Between those two passages, we have our passage where Jesus, before he calls on others to repent, is going to get to demonstrate his moral character. The question is, what kind of son does God approve of? He approves of Jesus, but we need to see him demonstrate his moral character. This passage is a recasting of an ancient struggle between God's people and God's adversary. This battle started in the Garden of Eden where our first parents were distracted and failed. The battle was fought again in the wilderness where God's people, Israel, were distracted in their complaining and they failed again. Will Jesus be successful where Adam failed? Will Jesus obey God where the nation of Israel failed and wandered for 40 years? Let's find out. Matthew chapter 4, would you follow along as I read this passage? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him.
Our message this morning, if you want to find the little insert in the bulletin, our message has two points. It could hardly be simpler. Uh, The first point is from the world of the text. We'll spend the majority of our time talking about that. And and then on the back side, we're going to go to the second point, which is from our world. And we'll talk about how we should think about this passage in our lives. And and as we go along, I I want to ask you to put your finger in Matthew chapter 4 and then find a second finger and put it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And then if you can find a third finger, if your hand works that way, put it somewhere around Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we're going to be going back and forth looking at how Jesus is fighting this battle that has waged in the past. Verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, in order to be tempted by the devil. There are some truths that come out of this first verse, and we shouldn't miss them. First of all, God never tempts us, but he does allow us to be tempted by Satan that we would learn to trust him. At the same time, though, Satan never has any more power than God allows him. So even though God gives us, gives Satan access to us in different times of our lives, the circumstances of this testing, of these distractions, are ultimately controlled by God. This should be tremendously comforting to us. Second truth here is that Jesus really needs to choose to obey God. There is an ancient discussion in the church, going all the way back to the church fathers, about whether or not Jesus could have actually sinned here. It has everything to do with his humanity and his deity and how he's both at the same time. The answer that satisfies me is that Jesus is morally innocent here, and remains so, like Adam, he won't necessarily sin as we will, because he doesn't have a sin nature, but he really must choose to obey God. Our salvation is in the balance here. Verse 2 talks about Jesus' humanity. It talks about how he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then at the end of this time, what? He was hungry. Don't just go blowing by that. That's, That's important. That shows us that Jesus is undergoing this test in full humanity. These distractions are going to hit Jesus at the point of greatest physical weakness. Jesus, who is fully God, is also fully man. And we're reminded that Jesus entered the world to do battle in human flesh. How did Jesus come into his creation? He was born born in blood and amniotic fluid, just like we were. 
he won our salvation at the cross in blood and sweat and spittle and tears and thorns and nails. This is a very physical struggle that is going on here. Verse 3, distraction number 1. There's going to be three of them. Verse 3 talks about the the desires of the body. He is tempted by the desires of the body. In verse 3, Satan says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. It's hard to see in English, but the construction here shows us that Satan is assuming the truth of the if clause. You are the Son of God. He's acknowledging that. It's a little bit like, uh, imagine an exasperated parent uh, looking at a child saying, if you know what's good for you, you'll clean up your room. Does the child know what's good for him? You bet. And the parent knows it. Satan is saying, you are the Son of God. I know it. You know it. So just take what's yours. Exercise your rights. Verse 4, Jesus' response. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is a quotation of Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3. Flip back there if you were, if you would. I think that's your third finger. Uh, flip back to Deuteronomy 8. This is Israel in the wilderness God talking to them about all the ways that he provided for them, and behind all this we know that they didn't obey. Verse 2, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What Jesus is saying is something like this. If my father wants me to endure this test, I won't satisfy my need apart from him. Real life is obedience to God and his word. And he will meet all my needs, even in ways that I don't expect. Where Israel showed what was in their hearts by doubting God, even though he fed them with manna, Jesus trusted God to meet his needs. Look back at Genesis 3, if you would. That's your second finger. Genesis 3, verse 6 gives a summary of what Adam and Eve were thinking when they fell in the garden. Look at how it corresponds to the temptations or the distractions of Jesus. So when the woman saw that the tree was, what, good for food, dot, 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 she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Jesus passes the test where Israel failed. Jesus passes the test where Adam and Eve failed, not just because he didn't act on his own terms, but because he actively took refuge in God and his word. Uh, Are we ever tempted by the desires of the body, you and I? Uh, Food, sleep, comfort, leisure, are these 
things ever a replacement for God and our desires for him? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Second distraction. This is the desire of the eyes, including the urge to be popular and spectacular. Verses 5 and 6, I'll read them again. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. There was a tradition at that time, probably coming from Malachi 3.1, that said that when the Messiah arrived, uh, he would appear in the sky over the temple. And so, uh, whether really or in a vision, we don't know, Satan took him up to what was probably the the corner of the porch of the temple where there was this huge drop-off into the Kidron Valley. And he quotes Psalm 91 saying, just throw yourself off, you know God's going to take care of you. And what he's really saying is, make yourself spectacular, Jesus, and the people will follow you. Easy. You're the son of God, right? One thing Satan does, though, and let's not get him, let him get away with it, he leaves out verses 1 and 2, of Psalm 91. Here's what Psalm 91 verses 1 and 2 say. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. In other words, this promise isn't true for everybody. You've got to dwell in God and seek Him. And then He'll care for you. This isn't lost on Jesus. In verse 7, Jesus responds, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting here Deuteronomy 6, which references Exodus 17. And this is that passage where the children of Israel were thirsty, and they cried out to God, and they, they grumbled, and finally he told Moses, Hit the rock. And he watered the people that way, but they really didn't seek him, though he did supply their needs. And what Jesus is saying here is, I'll not do something outrageous thinking that God has to bail me out. I'll obey God on his terms. I'll take refuge in him and his word. Then God will give me my inheritance in my time. Where Israel showed what was in their hearts by doubting God, even though he watered them from the rock, Jesus trusted God to meet his needs. Look back at Genesis 3 again. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, dot, 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 she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Jesus is passing the test Jesus passes the test where Israel failed. Jesus passes the test where Adam and Eve failed, not just because he didn't act on his own terms, but because he actively took refuge in God and his word. Hey, are we ever tempted by the desire to be popular or spectacular? Does that sound familiar to us at all? I took a continuing ed class this spring, uh, something for pastors, and uh, 
bunch of pastors gathered for four days, and among other things, we preached to each other, which was really something. And uh, we were all scared spitless, uh, because even though these guys just did this all the time, we're not used to being critiqued by the way that way. Not only is there a professor, but there's other there's other guys who know what they're doing. And uh, one of the guys finally got up there and he said, I just want to confess that I'm having a very hard time trusting Christ right now because I want you all to like me. And the room just erupted in laughter because it was so true. And we all knew what that felt like. What is the, what is the corollary? What is the, what is the equivalent feeling in your profession or even in your home that would make you want to be spectacular or popular. Distraction number three, verses eight and nine. This is the desire for glory and abundance and possessions, but on Jesus' terms, if he can get him to do it, independent of God, And through his own wisdom, will Jesus operate apart from God here? Verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What Satan is saying is, take everything that belongs to you, but worship me. What he's really suggesting is that Jesus claim everything that's his, but bypass the cross. Where would that have left us if Jesus had done this? Dead in our sins, right? Where would that have left Satan? Continuing to reign as the God of this world, as 2 Corinthians 4 calls him. You see, Satan's quarrel is not with us, but with God. What he wants is to share glory with God in our lives. Look at Jesus' response, verse 10. This is taken from two places, Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 10. It just, in a word, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Where Israel showed what was in their hearts by turning to other gods, Jesus, or where Israel showed that, Jesus will honor his Father alone. Look back one more time at Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The Jewish idea of wisdom involves possessions, abundance, Jesus passes the test where Israel failed. Jesus passes the test where Adam and Eve failed. He passes the distraction test, not just because he didn't sin, but because he actively took refuge in God and his word. Hey, are we ever tempted to acquire glory and possessions for ourselves by our own wisdom, apart from God? 
All sounds very familiar, doesn't it? The second point, and we're actually almost done. Jesus' obedience to God is why he is worthy of my trust in my distraction. We've talked about how the distractions of Christ, the temptation of Christ, is built on Israel's experience, which is built on the experience in Eden. But there's one more level here that we need to notice. Our experience is built on Jesus's experience. Go to 1 John 2.16. They're at the back of your Bibles. 1 John 2, verse 16. I'm actually going to read 15, 16, and 17. Look at how the old formula comes up here again. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here it is, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father but is from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. My struggle, your struggle with distraction is also a recasting of the temptation, the distraction in Eden. Only here's the good news. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus, not Adam. Remember how it works. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus who went to the cross for us. That's how we're saved. But our growth in holiness involves a struggle while we wait for Jesus to return for us. And often this struggle takes place in the the stuff of life. It's It's a physical struggle. How is this battle going for you? You know, there's a a truism, at least I made it up, we should say it. When in battle, fight. It's almost so simple that you don't want to say it. But how often in our battle with the flesh do we merely cope instead of fight? This week has been a heavy week for Amanda and I. Uh, I normally don't check my email on Monday, but for some reason I went in there and um, found a a series of reports that broke my heart. Another of our Christian leaders has fallen. And I, I take no delight at all in even talking about this stuff, but my goodness, it was in ABC, NBC, uh, World Magazine, Christianity Today, and People Magazine of all places. Tullian Tavidian is the grandson of Billy Graham, which is a very, very heavy mantle to carry. He's also the pastor who performed our wedding, Amanda and I. And during that time of life, 
Uh, he was a pastor on staff just beginning his ministry. I was on staff part-time with the missions department raising support. Uh, we would meet several times a week. Uh, I would have considered him a personal friend during those years. Uh, soon after that, he left and became a megachurch pastor in Florida. And then the report that went out on Monday over all these networks. Uh, apparently, this is what he said, his press release. Uh, he's been having trouble with his wife in their marriage, and he sought comfort in a friend. And you can see this coming. Uh, his friend turned out to be, this is my addition, an attractive young woman, and the relationship became inappropriate. And just like that, one of the most talented and gifted people I know is put out of ministry. The uh, secular media was relentless, especially in the comments sections of these different broadcast networks. Uh, I read the word fraud. Uh, I read the word hypocrite. But I'm here to tell you this brother is no fraud. Uh, he is no hypocrite. Uh, he dearly loves Jesus, but he's distractible. Just like you, just like me. And I yet esteem him in Christ. And I just can't wait to see how God is going to redeem this experience in his life. You know, Tullian's grandfather, Billy Graham, had a rule. Never travel with a woman who is not your wife. This was his own rule for himself. Don't travel with a woman who's not my wife. Don't have lunch alone with a woman who is not my wife. Uh, don't meet alone with a woman who is not my wife, at least unless there's a door open or a secretary or, or, or something like that. Uh, Billy, Graham, Billy Graham was berated for this. There was an article about four years ago in Christianity Today where he was basically called a chauvinistic dinosaur, <laughs> demeaning to women, because we've, we're past all of that. I think that Billy Graham understood that he was distractible. And at age 96, his ministry continues and his reputation continue intact. How are you doing in the battle? On your bulletin insert, there are five blanks, and I want you to fill them in with five questions. I'll, I'll read the questions and I'll read them again. And if the answer is yes to these five questions, then by God's grace, you're doing a good job. The answer is no, then you need to get with the Lord on this stuff and get help. Talk to somebody uh, in an appropriate way who can help you with this. Question number one, am I taking refuge in Jesus and his cross in my distraction? Am I taking refuge in Jesus and his cross in my distraction? I'm not Jesus, and you aren't either, okay? Remember that. All right? We're going to be distracted. 
But when we are distracted, we need to go right to the cross. We need to go right to Christ, ask for forgiveness, and then move on in obedience. Don't take refuge somewhere else. Don't run away. Go to Christ in our distraction. Question number two. Am I laying claim to something I believe God has given me, but on my own terms? I'll read it again. Am I laying claim to something I believe God has given me, but on my own terms? Does God want us to be comforted? Yeah, you bet. But not in just any relationship. There are boundaries in human relationships, and ultimately he wants us to be comforted in him, doesn't he? Question three. Am I fighting distractions with my body? Am I fighting distractions with my body? Remember how physical this struggle was for Jesus. It's physical for us too, and we need to make our bodies do things to to put them in a place where we can hear from God. There's a reason why we have a prayer room. In fact, the reason why there's furniture in there is that I used to go in there several times a day or week and and pray, and I finally said, hey, you know, we need to decorate this place so other people can come in here. There's kneelers in there. Is that because I'm monastic and I like monks and kneeling? No. It's because there are times when I need to make my body do things that will keep me and keep it from being distracted. We all need that. Find an equivalent in your house or make that work for you. We we fight distractions with our bodies, just as Jesus did. Fourth question, am I laying down boundaries that put me in the right place to hear from God? Am I laying down boundaries that put me in the right place to hear from God? If you struggle on the Internet in some way, either wasting time or something else, you know, a smartphone may not be a good device for you. Nobody's going to tell you that. You and your better moments need to figure that out and lay down that boundary for yourself. Put yourself in the right place to hear from God in order to, by laying down those boundaries. Fifth question, am I growing in my desire for Christ and his things? Am I growing in my desire for Christ and his things? You've got to be honest here because you can fool everybody else in here. Remember how Jesus didn't respond to distraction just by saying no. It wasn't, you know, no, 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 no. He responded in a positive way by going to God's word. In the same way, we need to be going to God's word, and that impulse is some indication that we're we're finding joy in God. And, And if you're not, just tell him about that. Say, Lord, help me to desire you. And I've never found him not to answer that prayer. How are you doing?
in the battle. Take these five questions. Take them home. Think about it this week. Let's commit our response to this passage to the Lord. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, He's not only our great example in responding to the the distractions of your enemy, but he's the one who won our salvation for us. And as we're distracted, as our hearts are at times turned, we remember that, that, that Jesus is the one that went before us. We're walking in his footsteps now, not the footsteps of our first father, Adam. Would you help us this week, Lord, as we think about this passage? Would you bring it back to our minds and and bury it deep in our hearts as we learn to trust you? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.